This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we're starting with a little attitude from our and control attitude. We had our, our engineer uh, <laughs> indicted the, the speed with which we began our recording sessions because we have a lot of, you know, chit-chat to have here that doesn't make it onto the show because it's even more boring than the stuff As we I talk about on the show. I always say, it's like we're always doing the podcast. We just record an hour every so often and put it on the show. Yeah. Here's what I'd like us to start doing, and by us, I mean me. Um, Because we tend to wander a bit, I'm going to say at the top of the show what the show's about so that if people are listening for the first time, they have a sense that we do actually get to the point eventually. How does that sound? I don't know. I don't want to give people false expectations. (laughs) It's an episode- we never send the stuff we say we're going to be- I'm not talking about giveaways. We're not talking about giveaways. Hopefully, we will have done the giveaway by the time this episode goes live. That's the commitment we made on our last episode. So, fingers crossed. Right here's hoping. This is another installment. It will eventually be an installment of True Crime TV Club. We're going to be talking about an episode of the Netflix series- World's Worst Fucking Roommate. No, it's actually called Worst Roommate Ever. The episode title is Call Me Grandma, Eric's favorite three words. (laughs) He loves calling someone grandma. 
<laughs> it gets him nice and ready. Anyway. No, that is not no, a true. That is not a true. Call me grandma just by itself just sounds creepy and weird. Yeah. And that's what the episode is going to be when we finally get Wait, to do it. Do people still want to be called grandma? Like, oh. you hear it so often that, no, don't call me grandma. Call me by my name or call me whatever, but call me by your name. Um, This is my family's story about this. So my uh, paternal grandmother was... Absolutely do not call me grandmother ever. It makes me feel old. Instead, call me Meemaw, which isn't exactly the name I would give a seven-year-old girl. You know what I mean? Like, you traded out one for the other. Like, Nana was taken. Like, I don't... What? But she said Grandma made her feel old, and Meemaw just was like Ma with a slight adjustment on the beginning. All right. Yeah. yeah and that was a while back. I think we've gotten to a place where modern day grandmas just want to be called Beverly or whatever. You know? <laughs> Even if their name is Susan. Elaine. I'm a Beverly. I mean, yeah. I'm, I got a fresh start with you, grandkids. Yeah, like a Beverly. I've always wanted to be Beverly. So call me that. I'll take you kids to the bar with me to meet my other poker friends. Yeah, I love it. That's my kind of grandma. That's the kind of grandma I want. Um, but uh, are we supposed to be te- before we do the true crime part of the episode? Are we supposed to be teasing a giveaway? We're gonna what are we, what are we, we're teasing? Oh yeah, we have the Jordan. Like two weeks now, Jordan Ampersand is going to be back. This is big thing. They've been pro- oh yeah, he's been telling about. I yes. can hardly wait. So he's yeah. back next week. Well, we're no yes next week. Um, and we're working on um, it's it, we're working together for the first time. I'm actually working with Jordan. He's gone out into the field. He's doing a series about um gay couples of various types who live together because this is the month in which we are celebrating you, Eric Shaw Quinn, getting a new place to live, even though it's going to take you forever to renovate it because you are such a prissy particular bitch. Oh, I'm sorry. What? Something just took me over. And there's a lot of things to fix. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, but it, it, I think there was going to be a lot of things to fix in any place that you got because you you're very it's your opportunity to make your own home. For I the will first say time. this about that: mm-hmm. like, I one of the things that appealed to me about this place was that it needed to be renovated. Yeah. Like, I think it occurred to me that. I think owners get in and they want to sell their place, so they go in and do a big renovation on the place, which drives up the cost of the. Mm-hmm. the property and you're asking somebody to buy into your vision of how to renovate the place right. which is the opposite of what I wanted like right. i was looking at places and even the most of the comparable places that i looked at were way more expensive and they had been renovated and i did not like what they had done with the renovation what have they done that you didn't well, like there was a trend currently in um Home decor. Let's go with that, where people tear down all the walls in the whole house. So you open the front door and you can see the backyard and the staircase is just a skeleton of steps that go Mm -hmm. up in the middle of a room and they arrange furniture and it looks like the Levitt's furniture showroom (laughs) arranged around. There's a kitchen running along one wall and a Mm -hmm. fireplace and you know, on one and, and you pretend that there are rooms, but there's really not. There's just this big basketball court sized area yeah. that, you know, everybody's just supposed to sit around and pretend they're in a different room. 
I don't understand that. It's fine if other people do. I think it's hideous and mm-hmm. people will come to regret it pretty fast. I bet people in the pandemic really regretted it. Right, because they had they no couldn't privacy. they could go anywhere to get away from the rest of their family. I think we've talked about this before, but do we believe that this is about parents wanting to be able to see their children from the kitchen? And I think the one area that I actually would agree with is if is the the family room kitchen di- breakfast yeah. room kind of ki- combination some places call it the keep or mm-hmm. whatever i think that kind of makes sense to me mm-hmm. at some level even then but like i have spent the last 20 plus years in this my apartment which is little i love my apartment it's little i went for the sort of luxury um hotel mm-hmm. suite kind of concept with a small apartment. Right. It's nice, but it's very small. And the but the kitchen is in the living room as a result. And I've spent right. twenty years trying to keep the cooking and garbage smells of the kitchen out of the living room. Why would you want those in there? I just yeah. like it's it it's just it's a it's a style that is very popular right now and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you do that, you rule out anybody who doesn't want that. Because who would want to pay a fortune to go in and tear out brand new stuff right. in order to put back the stuff you probably tore out in the first place? During the pandemic, or I should say during the lockdowns, because technically the pandemic is ongoing, you got me into HGTV shows for the first time. And there was a show called Rock the Block, which was a competition show with all their various designers. So and much fun. The winner of the season that, that I think the first season or second season, I can't remember, were not the best designers, but they were the per- they were the people who added the most value to the house with the safest sort of flipper-friendly right. installation. That's the object of the yeah. show. And then there wasn't really a great coherent design aesthetic to the finished product. It was just, oh, this had a bowling alley in the basement, or this had this. And, and they said, when they were challenged by the judges during one of the... There was, of course, a weekly competition... Um, they said the judges said you played a little safe this week, and they said pridefully safe sells. You're and it's, a, it's I think it's a similar version of what you're describing. Like you can have a house that's updated, but it bland and mediocre is a choice. It is an aesthetic, whether you want to admit it is or not. And so having to redo it um, from any level. Try to redo it from the less expensive level, which is the place that needs to be redone. I will also just say, oh, 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 oh. is on that season of Rock the Block, oh boy, Nate and Jeremiah were robbed. They were robbed. Yes, they totally did a much better job of doing exactly what the object of the show was, and they were robbed. Yes, a bowling alley is not something that increases the value of the house. They, instead of a bowling alley, added a second apartment. Yes. To the house. Yes. Which I think is a much more value increasing. Anyway, Clearly these feelings run deep. Now, I but really I'm going to put do. you on the spot. Would you have Nate and Jeremiah redo your house if you could? I would, but I really don't think we would get along. I think we would end up fighting about it because their design aesthetic is very different than mine. I, I have been back and forth with this and on this topic with you. I don't know how well you would do with a designer. I think you are very particular. I think you know what you want. I do. Yeah. And I like Nate and Jeremiah like for everything to be beige and oatmeal. And I like <laughs> color and style and particular, you know, particular like I think they could take my stuff as an accent piece, mm-hmm. but I don't think they would want to do the whole room in it. And yeah. I want the whole room like I want the sort of 
we were talking about it the other day. Paul Williams was a famous right. architect who sort of responsible for the Hollywood Regency period. And mm-hmm. That really appeals to me. That's what I'm going to be shooting for as I redo the place talk, that to I talk move some into. About- what Hollywood Regency is for people who might not know what we're referring to. We take it for granted here because we live here. But Honestly, it's kind of an amalgam of styles. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really... I was noticing when I came in the studio today, the railing on this building, which is kind of 50s modern, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is Hollywood Regency. It's this... It's, uh, it, it, it's a little more decorative. Um, it is... It is a... There's aspects of Art Deco to it. There's aspects of a sort of country French kind of aesthetic to it. There's some of the modern kind of styling to it, as in uh, frequently Paul Williams would do the entry hall with rounded walls or, right. or that sort of, you know, the, those kinds of more modern kind of elements. But they were always in the context of a more classical um, kind of environment, paneling and um, marble textures and the colors are probably more muted, mm-hmm. but it tends towards a more sort of elegant um, French Art Deco kind of aesthetic. I, mm-hmm. That's the best I can do with it. It's its own thing, but it is. I think it's pretty recognizable. Okay. I am incredibly excited to see how your place develops, and I think we will be talking about it a lot here on the podcast, but we also are going to be talking a lot about true crime, and hopefully no crimes will be committed in the commission of your renovation. I really, no true, I would like for a true crime-free renovation yeah. to be the, the, the hallmark of this particular, as opposed to this week, which is True Crime TV Club, Call Me Grandma. I have been looking, you've had some difficult roommate situations. Next week on the episode, we're going to talk to the party people about their worst living situations. Next week could just be an episode about my terrible living situations. I'm glad because I'm a little sheepish to talk about mine because I've led a very privileged existence. But anyway, no secret. Uh, this show, when it first popped up, I thought Eric. When I saw it promoted, I was like, Eric is going to be all over the show. <laughs> Worst roommate ever is the title of the show. So hard to say which one it would be. So I'm going to dive in, and we're going to do our, our usual back and forth where I read too many details from my notes, and Eric cuts in to say stuff that's actually interesting and full of character and flavor. Um this one started in a weird place. <laughs> and vegetables and gravy. And vegetables and gravy and garni. Uh, this one started in a weird place. I didn't know what I was watching at first. It starts with a promotion, a vintage promotional film about the beautiful city of Sacramento, California. It was pretty funny. In this old, creaky title card that looks like it was made in a high school AV classroom from 1984. Because it probably was. The Sacto story. I guess... Sacto is the abbreviation for Sacramento. I bet somebody from Sacramento would punch you in the chops if you called it. Sa- it's like calling it, calling San Francisco Frisco. Nobody does that. I just Nobody think it would that. piss people off from Sacramento Absolutely. if you called it Sacto. Or calling it New Orleans. Nobody calls it New Orleans. No. It's New Orleans or Nolens. Okay, so the Sacto story, ready for the 80s. That's the subtitle, and we get helicopter shots of beautiful Sacramento in 1981-ish, 2-ish, 3-ish. I can't remember. Um, and then we start to hear a police detective talking to us. Never a good sign that the story Always we're going to hear. is a sign that things have taken a turn. <laughs> as soon as you're getting philosophy from someone identified as Detective John Carbera, uh, you, you know, shit's about to get real. So he's saying that 1988 was a good time for Sacramento, but it was also a time of <laughs> widespread homelessness. Because which... Reagan and Maggie Thatcher were in <laughs> office and poor people were fucked. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not laughing at the idea of poor people being fucked. But Eric really clearly remembers these years. Oh, yeah. This was the him. year that Reagan and Ron, that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher invented the homelessness problem that we are still contending with today by completely obviating their responsibility to the less fortunate in our cultures. And what had happened here in California was the gutting of and this is none, none of this is said in this California st- where Ronald Reagan episode. used to be governor. Yeah, absolutely. The gutting of the mental health system here. It was completely gutted. Um, the Ryan bl- Murphy actually did an American Horror Story yes. show about just that. Absolutely. Um, none of that is addressed in the episode. No. The episode stays neutral on these topics. But it does point out that the problem began to happen at that time and when he was in office. One of the first people we meet, one of the few interview subjects in this story, because the lens on this story doesn't go incredibly wide, I don't think, it's, is a social worker named Judy who worked for Volunteers of America was Volunteers of America a private organization or a government organization? I wasn't clear on you that. You know, I honestly don't know that. My answer would be that it was the modernized version of the Peace Corps. Okay. I think that's true, but I honestly don't know that. Right. Well, she tells us that she was working at the time uh, trying to get people off the street and connected to mental health services, and she took a special uh, shine to a case that she established uh, a gentleman named Alberto Gonzalez Montoya, because he was having mental health challenges that reminded her of her son's mental health challenges. People called Alberto Bert. That was his nickname. He was born in Costa Rica. He came to the U.S. at the age of 16. And unfortunately, right around that time, he started manifesting symptoms of schizophrenia. The parents, it sounds like, about whom not a lot of detail is given, were overwhelmed by his condition they put him in an institution which, and this was, I don't know if this is done at all anymore, but they administered shock therapy as a treatment. I don't know where they, we are with shock. I I think it's over. I think they decided that it was completely not useful, but I could, you know, I'm certainly not a doctor. I, I It's always seemed like, how could this possibly do you any good? <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So our social worker kind of protagonist, if you will, even though this is a documentary, Judy, has taken has really become connected to this gentleman named Bert who is struggling with schizophrenia. And so Bert is apparently cognizant enough to make some decisions about what type of facility he would like to live in. He's been living in a detox because he prefers it to the mental health centers in the area, which Judy describes as not being very good. Um, but he is expressing a desire to live in an environment known as a boarding house, which is, I guess, not really a mental health center, but it is a place where somebody, out of the goodness of their heart, is... It used to be more of a concept in the world. Yeah. Like, boarding houses were not necessarily even for... Like, it was a 
like for a long time, a boarding house was an, a, a living institution in the right. world where you might have a job and be doing perfectly good and well, but you would rent a room in a house and the house would conduct its affairs like a house. Mm. Meals would be provided, cleaning would happen, and laundry would be done. And you'd just live in one of the rooms there and you would pay. Your rent would include your participation in the household. Participation, Your right. room and board. And that's... That's where you that, that was a boarding house. And I think it's become now. I don't think that's really much of a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think that it has become now a way in which people with more depressed circumstances can provide get avail themselves of a more home like environment. Right. Without having to take on the responsibility of running a house. There is one in the area at the time run by a woman named Dorothea Puente, who is beloved. She's a political donor in the community. Every Wednesday and Thursday, she hosts Burrito Day at her boarding house, which draws people from all over. She lives on the top floor. Her boarders live below. As you were describing, meals are provided as part of their rent. And she also has check signing abilities for some of them. So I guess the idea is if she was taking in boarders who were mentally struggling, she could uh, deposit their social security checks? Right. I, that is often the case with, um, like, I know that it's the case with um, uh, some of the recovery facilities here. Yeah. You sign over your um, your benefits checks, and that, whatever your benefits are, pay for yeah. your accommodations in that particular facility. Right. And I think she had worked out a deal where she could do that. So Judy takes Bert there. Um, she's very impressed with Dorothea. She says Dorothea seems like a very sweet old lady. She's she's caring for a box of kittens that are nearby during the interview and I think feeds one of them milk out of a bottle. Um, Judy also meets a former, uh, a gentleman who was a former kind of case of hers, a man named John Sharp there. He vouches for Dorothea, says it's a good environment. He seems to be doing well and thriving. Right. So um, she puts Bert there. She basically takes care of Bert by putting him in this boarding house with Dorothea. Uh, and in the beginning, it seems to work. Bert appears to be thriving. And then one day, Judy calls to check on him, and Dorothea answers the phone and says, Bert's not here. Um, he's apparently gone to Mexico to stay with Dorothea's brother for, and this is a quote now, a fiesta, which Judy's like, hey, what do you mean by fiesta? It means party. Like, <laughs> no, it's not like and, a holiday, the fiesta yeah, holiday. Bert is a fragile schizophrenic yeah. with real damage from the mental health system. Like, his tra- traveling to a foreign country for a party seems a little much. So Judy keeps calling. She keeps getting brushed off each time. And finally, she's had it, and she threatens to call the police and report him as a missing person. On Monday, her office gets a call from a man who identifies himself as John Anthony, and he claims Bert's no longer at the house. His family came and picked him up. Judy doesn't believe that story for a second. Because his family washed their hands of him a long, long, long time ago. So she goes and she talks to her old, um, I don't know, her old friend, Case, John Sharp, the gentleman she recognized when she first visited. And he says, um, nobody in this house went to Mexico and Bert just kind of disappeared. Also, Dorothy has been digging holes in the backyard. So <laughs> off of that revelation. Right, like, and there's a rose garden now? Yeah. Or like, no, just holes. 
Who is Dorothea Puente? And the specials kind of serves up her very checkered history in short order. And she is nobody's grandma and she is no sweet old lady. She was born Dorothea Gray in Redlands, California in 1929. That's actually down here in the Inland Empire, uh, close to L.A. County. Um, We're now being told her story by a deputy district attorney. Also not a good sign. Never a good sign if law enforcement has a a real bead on your history. (laughs) Um, did I, I must have written his name down. It's somewhere in the notes. Anyway, he's telling us that Dorothea hit the system in 1948 when she was convicted of felony forgery. In, ni- in the 1950s, she was a sex worker. Then she became a madam of her own brothel, an achievement for which she briefly went to jail in 1960. Charming. In 1982, she picked up a man in a bar and drugged his drink. He was given, and I never heard this term, a stupefying agent. They keep using it as if it's a technical term, meaning he was, it was kind of terrifying. He was incapable of moving, but he was aware of what was going on. You could see, but he couldn't respond or move or anything. Yeah, it's and, really yeah. terrifying. And she was just going through his, um, not his purse. He didn't have a purse. He, I, I, he but his like wallet. He's a cisgendered male. But took, yeah. even took a ring off of his hand. Off of his hand. Because just... he was so incapacitated. Yeah. She's really pretty thorough. The other thing is she's not as old as she makes out. But she looks incredibly old. She plays the part well. And I thought that was kind of brilliant. She reminded me of, I remember one day I was driving down the road in traffic and there was this beautiful vintage T-Bird pulled up next to me at the light. And I looked over and there was a lady sitting behind the wheel of the car. Fine looking woman. Um, But she was probably the original owner of that vintage car. Mm -hmm. She... She still had the long, you know, 60s locks and the the look and the whatever, but they were gray. And yeah. she was an older woman. And I, that's what I thought of with, with this. We have this tendency to sort of put people of a certain age. They become invisible. Yes. Right. And they become harmless. And we don't pay much attention to them. And we put them in the, well, she couldn't be any trouble because she's, and Dorothea apparently was onto that. So she dyed her hair gray and mm-hmm. wore glasses and walked curls, stooped over. Sort of grandma stuff. curls, yeah. She did the whole thing and she, everybody bought her routine. And apparently nothing could have been further from the truth. She was also passing herself off as a medical doctor and taking advantage of elderly women. She would show up with a medical bag and then drug them and rob them as she did the man she picked Uh up in the bar. Charming. So for all of this, she pleads guilty to five felonies and goes to state prison for five years. And when her name appears in the paper, the family of a woman named Ruth Monroe contact the district attorney who handled the case, specifically her son Bill, and they say, we think Dorothea killed our mother. Um... Their mother was dating a man named Harold who took her to a restaurant called the Flame Club. We're going back in time now, uh, where Dorothea was working as a part-time cook. She was real friendly, and she said, call me Grandma. So, like, we're even further back in time, and she's already being called Grandma. So this is like... She said to the kids. Right. The 70s, and we're meeting her in the... Anyway, okay. Yeah. Um, She's already playing the harmless old woman role. She convinces Ruth to invest in her restaurant, which never makes any money, so she keeps hitting her up for more money and more money and more investment money. Harold, Ruth's beau, or I guess they married at some point, who introduced her to Dorothea, who I wanted to know more about. Like, how did he know Dorothea? He gets terminal cancer, and so I guess he passes away, and so Ruth moves in with Dorothea. 
I'd just like to interject here for a moment. Sure. Like the one thing this really, this show really sort of missed out on for me was how did Dorothea get that house? Like it's apparently in the heart of. This uh, is the, the boarding his, house you're talking about. The yeah. historical district. It's this. It is a. It's on the federal. It's on the registry of historical places. Um, and it's Dorothea's. And my question is, how did she get this house? And when did she get this house? Because I think when Ruth moves into her in with her, it's a different house, right? No. Oh, they. Oh, she's already. This is a landmarked. It's. They keep showing it. It's a Victorian. Yeah. yeah. There's even another show on. I think Discovery. Where they do a renovation of this house? Oh my God! Where they—that's the—I think it was the premise of the show that didn't really pan out. Mm-hmm. The pilot is up, and Ooh, um, almost, almost spilled my tea there. there Eric, so I'm getting so excited. excited about Once it. we're talking about houses again, right? you're getting worked up. But it's where yeah. they you renovate murder houses. Mm. Charming. Um, we're gonna. And, we're so gonna. I don't know how she got this house, but it's yeah. like. I think it's really a missing piece in this story. It is a very maybe big, it was from her days as a madam. I that's don't know. What, or she had more days as a madam than were identified in the show mm. or proved in a court of law. So Bill Ruth Monroe's son, who has approached the district attorney, says one day I showed up at their house and my mother was drinking and she didn't ever drink, but she said she was so stressed out about this restaurant that never made any money and and stressed out about how much money she had to give Dorothea to keep it running. That they were at the end of the rope and the restaurant was closing. So she's drinking creme de menthe, which is not like her. And or then anybody, because that's like an ice cream topping. <laughs> no, I never had it when I was drinking. I never it's had It's really cream like, yeah, it would be like I'm having a glass of pancake syrup. Pancake syrup Yum. and amaretto yes. or something like that. No, amaretto is pretty drinkable. Yeah. So he, he comes back the next day and Dorothea says, your mother's resting. And he's like, what do you mean she's resting? And so he goes up to her room and he finds his mother sleeping, it seems, alive, but basically almost non-responsive. Her eyes are open. Yeah. Tears come into her eyes, but she doesn't say anything or move at all. Right. Which is, what does that remind us of? The next morning. She is stupefied. Right. And the next morning, Bill gets a call from his sister saying that their mom died. That Dorothea called her and said, come and get your mom's stuff. And her mom's stuff was an empty purse. Which is why even call them. Yeah, exactly. She's And she's her defense is, your mom gave me everything. So she tells the coroner that um, Ruth committed suicide. The This is where I got a little confused. The autopsy reveals highly toxic levels of really dangerous drugs. But then somebody tells us that the coroner's office in Sacramento at the time is not equipped to prove that that this was a murder. And I guess some, I guess there were certain amounts, I don't know what tests they had to run, but they could detect the drugs, but I guess, I don't know what about the coroner's office would have detected whether or not they had been slipped her drink. I mean, there's no, there's no physical trauma associated with that act that they could have detected. I have no idea. Yeah. But for whatever reason, even though she came in um, having, well, there was nothing to, because Dorothy had planted the, suspicion of suicide right i mean you could just take the drugs like how did she in fact how did these drugs get in her system how do we prove that and i don't know that they necessarily could so the da who has been telling us this whole real backstory because we're still back before bert ever disappeared from right after the sacto story he was still him he was um 
uh, on a temporary assignment. And so he was leaving this office. And so he turned all this Ruth Marcus stuff over to the coroner's office. They weren't equipped to make the case. But she goes to jail anyway on the other Ruth charges. Monroe? They weren't equipped to make the Ruth Monroe case. She goes to jail. You said Ruth Marcus. Oh, Ruth like... Marcus. Yeah, that's right. Wait, hold on. Ruth Monroe. Ruth Monroe. Yeah, I you said. We... I was just like. Is yeah. this another character or no? No, it's Ruth Monroe. I think I know someone named Ruth Marcus. Anyway, well, leave her out of it, okay. would you? We're going to leave this in the podcast because we're just so real. That's right. As awkward as it is. Okay, so um, she goes to jail on the other charges: the robbery of the guy from the bar, the I think defrauding right. the old women as a doctor, all that sort of stuff. She gets out in 1985 and opens a boarding house. And nobody notices. And the terms of her parole forbid her from acting as a caretaker, given her past convictions. Yeah. Um, but apparently she has multiple names from multiple marriages. And I'm going to tell you, this is a trend line through so many of the I'm crime stories. You. Bad record keeping. Yes. People the, are not able to. Uh, the Catholic Church, you know, uh, perpetrated horrendous crimes on yeah. people for years based on bad record keeping. Like, and. Moved him to a new place and changed his name slightly, and yeah. they was just he was all new again. All those child molestation charges just sort of melted away. And I'm not attacking Sacramento because I don't think this problem was unique to Sacramento, but this is a big thing in the Golden State Killer case, which we saw in Are You Gone Absolutely. in the Dark. He was he was killing people in adjacent counties, but those individual counties were not our municipalities. With each we're other. not communicating with each other. Yeah. And there were some personalities there too, because when they when people tried, they were like, Get out of our case, this is our case. I mean yeah. territoriality can contribute to that, but just bad fucking records. But yeah, like even if there was some kind of yeah, you it's it's about the records. It's not about the personalities you, because you don't need a personality to look something up. Right, exactly. All right, so we're back to 1988. We've caught up. Um, the police is taking are, are taking a missing persons report from Judy about Bert. Um, everyone in the house is giving the same story, which is no story. They're saying, yeah, Bert was just gone one day, except for Judy's friend, John Sharp, who slips her a note saying she wants me to lie to you, she being Dorothea. He says when he comes forward, the police take him in for questioning. He says he doesn't know what happened to Bert, but he knows that um, Dorothea asked him to lie and say that she was gone Thursday and Friday, and he, John, saw Bert on Saturday, and that if he does it, the quote is, I'll make it well worth your while. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. 
But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Y- yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. So, Detective Carbera who has taken the missing persons report on Bert and is now investigating Dorothea's boarding house. Apparently there were some records out there because he went out and found out about Dorothea's long criminal history. And he and his fellow patrol officer, or a patrol officer, I should say, I think he was a detective, Jim Wilson, they go to visit the boarding house and they question Dorothea and she repeats her same story. And uh, I'm sorry, Parole officer. I got my own notes wrong. Jim Wilson is Dorothea's parole officer. Yeah, that makes more sense. And he goes with the detective to her boarding house. They start to question her. She goes quiet because he says, what is this house here? What, what is this operation you're running, given that you know you have a history of running brothels? Right. And, she uh, looks at her- Taking par- advantage of disadvantaged people. She looks directly at her parole officer and says- I'm in violation of my parole. Like, she immediately admits it because the parole says she cannot act as a caretaker. Right. Or pose as one for criminal reasons. She's never acted as a caretaker. She's never actually been a caretaker anyway. She's just been a criminal. She lets them search. Like, this is the other weird part of it. She really doesn't put up a lot of resistance. She's acting like someone who expects to be able to worm her way out of this. And given what we're about to find out, there's not really... Anyway... The detective searches the boarding house and keeps finding, like, empty bottles of diazepam everywhere. Like, things that could be easily used. Little blue pills in the back of all the drawers. And then he asks for permission to dig in her yard because John has told the story of the people digging holes. And she's like, yeah. Which is like, have you never met a lawyer woman? I'm I'm not trying to advocate for this psycho, but it was like, huh, okay. So these three men, the, the detective Carbera, the patrol, uh, the parole officer, and somebody else, I think from the Sacramento Police Department, they go out into the backyard and they just start digging holes. And de- the detective tells us that he starts hitting what he thinks are pieces of leather that look like beef jerky. I know. And then his shovel, Gross. we're getting, Gross. Eric's pulling a face. Then his shovel strikes something hard. He yanks on it. He realizes it's a human femur, and it's attached to other skeletal body parts. And you guessed it. The leather was actually human flesh. But this body is in an advanced state of decomposition. It's not Bert. So they don't know who this is, and they don't have her on anything relating to Bert's disappearance. Dorothea never flinches. She denies everything. I don't know why the body's there. It wasn't always my house. This was a strange moment for me. In the whole thing, because yeah. they took her in for questioning and whatever, mm-hmm. and then they went back to do more exploration, and it was like, I'm sorry, I feel like there's enough. She's already in violation of her parole, which means you go back to prison. That's yeah. what happens when you violate your parole. So I'm surprised that they took her back home at yeah. all, right? let alone 
a louder sort of, you know, personal Do freedoms, personal liberties. It's because of what you were saying earlier. They thought this is an old woman. Little old lady. Little old lady. She's I not going to run. I think she was still, yeah. and I think that's why she was so cash about yeah. the searching the house and digging in the yard, because she knew she could little old lady her way around it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, an anthropologist is brought in to supervise a complete dig of her backyard. Which I thought was a really strange choice. Not an archaeologist, but an anthropologist. I know. Don't anthropologists study cultures? I thought so, too. I think they meant an archaeologist. I think think it's the detective who says this. I think he meant to say an archaeologist. I really don't think it was an anthropologist, but maybe... So Dorothea is just hanging out in her house while they're doing this, and she summons the detective upstairs and says, am I under arrest? And he says, no. Which is the truth, because he says he has nothing to hold her on. So she says, I'd like to get a cup of coffee with my nephew. And he says, because he has no cause to hold her, he says, okay. So (laughs) she leaves, presumably to go around the corner and have a cup of coffee with her nephew. Well, he walks her over there. That's right. And it's a hotel, right? He walks her over to this hotel in the neighborhood and drops her off and says, okay, you have a nice coffee with your nephew and, you know. And they resume digging and immediately find Bert's body. Yeah. They find a fresh leg underneath where the other body was, which is like, how did that, where did this body, how did an older body get on top of Bert's body? Anyway, so they're like, oops, she did it. Clearly we need to find her. And of course she's not at the hotel having coffee with because her nephew. Because she went straight through, right out the back right. door and onto a plane and out of town. They find body after body after body. I mean, it is a graveyard. So apparently the story that's coming together, she was getting these social security checks from these borders and I they don't make clear when she decided to murder them, because there are men living in the house. Maybe they were the men whose checks she didn't manage to get yet, and she was still working them. Well, I think the people who were still living there were like her cover, but mm-hmm. I, she, they said that she selected people who did not have family. Oh, God. And then Horrifying. once she had the check signed over to them, if she got rid of them, then it was all just free and clear. She just mm-hmm. got their benefits, and she didn't have to waste it on you know food and electricity yeah. and stuff like that. God, unbelievable. So she was making, in this day and age, in 1988, she was making $50,000 a month. Isn't that what they said? Something crazy. I don't know. Maybe I read it down later. For that time period would have been, she told somebody she was independently wealthy. That's what she told the woman who first brought Bert there. Yeah. And if she was making that kind of money, she really was. That would have been, in 1988, $50,000 a month would have been an unbelievably vast salary. So, and okay, here's another part of the story where it's like, I wanted to know more. So John Sharp, who initially, when he saw Judy at the beginning of this said, yeah, this is a great place. Everything's wonderful. Suddenly tells the police detectives in the midst of all this, there's this horrible smell of death coming from a certain part of the house. I know you've been in the yard, but there's this part of the house that's, and he says, I used to work for the Kansas city mortuary. So I know what this smells like, or I know what this smell is. And they pull it up and they find, they pull up the carpet in that area and they find putrefied body fluid. She'd been preparing the bodies, I guess, with lye, trying to, you know, anyway, just unbelievable. Meanwhile, they find her finally at what is described as a neighborhood bar in Los Angeles. She's just gone down to L.A. and gone out for a drink. She's all over the news. The story is irresistible for the media. Killer grandma, you know. Taking it's like arsenic and old lace that old play you know absolutely um, and uh, only all arsenic <laughs> and no, very little lace um, yeah she was 
Yeah, she just went to, and she was like trying to pick up people at bars. I mean, she was literally moving on to her next victims. More family members come forward of another gentleman named Everson Gilmouth. They say he was engaged to Dorothea, um, showed up dead on the side of a river. Um, <laughs> it's like how many, again, no records, no cross. You Although know. I will say for a moment in Dorothea's defense in this particular case, and it's not okay that she killed him, mm-hmm. but he became enamored of her while she was in prison for drugging men and taking advantage of her. Right. Oh, that's of right. Them. Yeah. And like, I would think if you were going to become a the lover of somebody who was a you know prison pen pal, you'd at least want to pick somebody who's not guilty of uh, exploiting, if not killing, people who are very much like you. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Like that just seems really like really. They that's... struck up a, a a pen pal correspondence as she was in jail for drugging and defrauding older people, and, and he was that yeah. person. He was a profile of yeah. what she was. So he moved in with her and then went missing, and then his dead, lifeless body was found by a river. And, and meanwhile, Dorothea, after he went missing, continued to send postcards giving the sister, his sister, a false story. Right. Oh, his heart condition. He's seeing doctors, all this sort of stuff. Unbelievable. She's charged with Ruth Monroe's murder at long last. She goes to trial in 1990. Her story is they died in their sleep and she didn't want to call the police because, wait for it, she was violating her parole by running a boarding house. Right. She's found guilty of three of the murders, but the jury deadlocks on six, which I think they present means one juror felt she couldn't be convicted of those other murders or believed her story because she was a sweet old lady. Right yeah. till the end, she was convincing somebody she was, she was a sweet old lady. still playing that part even at the on the witness stand, but she was having to dye her hair gray. And one of those murders is Ruth. Ruth, she's not convicted of Everson's murder, Ruth's mm-hmm. murder, or Bert's murder. But I guess the other bodies that are found in the yard, about which we aren't getting a... We get their names. Leona Carpenter... I thought Carpenter, she was convicted of Bert's murder. I thought I was they I think they showed title cards at the end and I think those were the three she was not convicted of or maybe I No, I thought she was convicted of Leona Carpenter, Dorothy Miller, James Gallup, uh Vera Faye Martin, Betty Palmer, Everson Gilmouth, um Bert Montoya or Ruth Monroe. That's who she was accused of murdering. Yeah. But she was not convicted of murdering most of those people. Yeah. Um, but I thought Bert was one of the people that she was. That may be the case. She did go down for. I thought it was Bert and yeah. some of the people who, the older murderers. I hit the table. Oh, you, I was like, that was a weird sound. It was a very sa- weird sound. I think it was actually the um, the silver turkey dome the that's sitting on the dome. table next to us. Absolutely. We'll explain that because later. Because that... Visual for our masthead is is pretty real. Yeah, no, we have a silver turkey dome. Anyway, um, she dies in prison at the age of eighty two on March twenty seventh, two thousand eleven, and this gets to what we were talking about earlier. Usually, murder houses are raised, but this is historically landmark. So this Victorian is still sitting in the middle, and it's in the middle of Sacramento. I mean, literally. Yeah, and uh, it can never be torn down. The the final note of the documentary is Judy tells us that she connected with Bert's family and they have a memorial service for Bert and she finds a way to fly in the family so that they can all be present and Julie performs the eulogy, which is touching. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, it was nice. And she said at the end that she felt like it was Bert's destiny 
to bring down Dorothea. Yeah. That it was the it was a tragic circumstance. It broke her heart. She broke down several times talking about it, but she felt like that was ultimately the thing that he gave us. That was the yeah. gift he gave us all was he got rid of this, I mean, just psychotic monster. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it, it, I what don't, a psychopath. Like, no regard. We look at a lot of people who don't have regard for human life, who see people as objects, but... There, there's a maybe it is the sort of sweet old lady act that made this even more horrifying to me. The sort of leisurely way she seemed to dispatch and murder people and go through life with an almost quietude about her. It's like they said she had a brutal childhood, but my yeah. God, Grandma must have really done a number on her. Yeah, yeah, and they don't give any details about the brutal childhood. No, not really. And I think sometimes those are held back because sometimes these specials don't want to be accused of justifying the behavior of somebody this awful. But well, I'm I think, sorry, there isn't a justification. Yeah. Having a terrible childhood is not a reason to be a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Like it's Absolutely. not. It doesn't make it. Oh, okay. You had a bad yeah. childhood. Well, never mind that. Go kill all the people you want to. That isn't a thing. Well, aside from. The fact that, as you already said, you think she was treated differently because of the little old lady act. Absolutely. Was there anything else you wanted to hear more about? Or was there, I always like to say, was there a story Eric Shaw Quinn heard that the people telling the story didn't hear? No, honestly, it seemed pretty straightforward. The parts that were the most challenging for me was her position in society. like And that house and all of the accoutrement that contributed to that. I was like... So she just got out of prison and set herself up as a philanthropist socialite in the middle of town. Like she didn't even go to a new town. Yeah. You know, I just was I thought that was really odd. Maybe it was a very transient society. Maybe there weren't a lot of people to remember. No memory of And maybe it was because she took advantage of disadvantaged people. And so that. Maybe there was less of a record, but I thought that was a strange component to the story, and I would like to have known more about it. I agree. I got the sense, too, that everyone she targeted, even prior to the boarding house, was suffering from some sort of cognitive or mental issues. I don't I don't know if that was yes. true of Ruth Monroe, but there seemed to be a sense of that. There, I, I felt they didn't say that about Everson Gilmouth. Is that she really she started a pen pal correspondence with someone who had some mental struggles, who couldn't quite comprehend who she really was. And responded to her affection Maybe. against his better judgment. But people have made terrible choices in relationships without Absolutely. suffering. There from are plenty of like horrible serial killers who get jailhouse romance with people from, um, you know, the the outside. I think one of the Menendez brothers, and I don't think they're horrible serial killers, um, but I think one of the Menendez brothers is married. At the Night Stalker was married. Yeah. The Night Stalker got married in prison. Who, uh, in prison right. got married. Like you could watch, you could look at the Night Stalker's crimes, what he was convicted of, and still want to even talk to him, let alone. And the Night Stalker pled to him. guilty, I think. I can't remember. I don't think the Night Stalker pled innocent ever. Oh. Didn't he claim that it was the devil made him do it? Or I it don't remember. I read a story. Or... The Night Stalker book is a book I wish I could unread. I read it years ago as research for a novel I wrote called Light Before Day, which didn't really end up being about a serial killer. But I there were details in it about the detail of somebody going off crack to become a better serial killer. Like you, It's more comforting to believe that in a fit of, of drug-induced psychosis, somebody lost their mind and committed a horrible act, but somebody consciously cleaning up their act to kill better 
to break into people's homes in the middle of the night and just do hideous, sadistic things. Yeah, he was in a class. He was in a class by himself. And I think Dorothy is in that same class. Well, and then Dorothy you, reminds me of Pam. Pam. Oh, the thing, thing about, about Pam. Pam. Yeah, I was like, not think, our friend Pam. I think Pam could <laughs> have, know, not... or even our enemy Pam. No, the thing about Pam. The thing um, about Pam. That's yeah. Pam Hupp, the Dateline yeah. special. We did an and episode. I think on she it. could have grown up to be a Dorothea. Yeah, like she was starting that same sort of thing, seeing people as a means to an end and not as people. Like, yeah. She killed her best friend because she wanted that insurance. She threw her mother off the balcony because she wanted that insurance. She took advantage of that mentally disadvantaged man to try and frame somebody else for a crime that she had done. Like, there was a whole series of really um, psychopathic, you know, um, almost sociopathic aspects to to her personality. And I... I thought the same was true of Dorothea. I thought she was just devoid of any sort of humanity whatsoever. Absolutely. God. Absolutely. Okay, so next week, our theme continues, but we're taking a little break from True Crime TV Club. We went to our party people for one of our Wednesday questions on the Facebook page, and we asked them the following. What is the worst living situation you were ever forced to endure, and how did you get free of it? Tell us all the scary, horrifying, and revolting details. I feel like I overcued people with Yum. that wording because we got a few revolting details. Oh, good. But, um, you know, we're continuing to celebrate your new living situation to come <laughs> by uh, forcing people to relive the horrible ones they barely survived. I guess I mean, I, I, that's a stretch. Yeah. That's a stretch, but yeah. sure. What the hell? Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I don't, I'm struggling over my answer to that one. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to say. That's, um, that's, you know, I think everybody has their, everybody's experience is their own. Yes. Like there are things that seem terrible for my life that I would say are terrible things in my life that maybe somebody else wouldn't think were terrible. And even I don't see as the most, like even compared to the other stuff that's happened in my life, Mm -hmm. don't seem like the most terrible, but because they are to me. Mm Mm-hmm then that's all that matters. Absolutely. Don't you think? Terrible is relative. Right. Terrible is my relatives. No. Relatives are terrible, Relatives too. are terrible, too. Relative, can't pick your family. But you retitled our next episode. What are you going to call it? Get Wrecked? I was going to call get it Home Wrecked. wrecked. Get yes. Wrecked. The okay. Get Wrecked episode. And Jordan Ampersand's Redemption is next week. You're going to be so pleased. He's been working Jordan so Ampersand's hard. Jordan Ampersand's Redemption? Yes. That seems like a lot to ask of well, a he, redemption. He's very excited about your new living situation. He wanted to contribute something special. He's not coming to my new house. No, he doesn't have to come to your new house, but he he wanted to contribute to the theme of the special month that we're doing. So he's gone out and done a bunch of field interviews with gay couples who um, are cohabitating. And what that's like, and their configurations, and their you know their what I don't know. He's still working on it, but uh, but it's I'm it's very promising. He's given me some updates, and I'm going to be in the studio with him this time as he does it. So it's gonna I'll make sure everything goes fine. I'm really interested to see it, but I think maybe you want to moderate your expectations where Jordan is concerned. I've leaned, Redemption seems like a lot. I've leaned on him pretty hard to try. I know you guys had some rough patches, so I've leaned on him pretty hard. I'm I'm hopeful. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. I'm hopeful. 
All right, then. Well, I... Um, All right, until I'm then and forever. Pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I'm going to wrap this episode up before you can say anything else. All right. <laughs> until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shockley. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and, and Jordan. And Eric. <laughs> next week. Thanks. This is TDPS.